And so today we take up Revelation chapter 17. I'd like to encourage any of our sermon audio listeners to read that chapter if they've not already done so. And by way of preface, let me just indicate that as I began this series many months ago now, I indicated that this would be studies in the book of Revelation and not a study through the book in terms of it being an exhaustive chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study. However, I've tried to hit most of the chapters. In this case, I'm skipping over chapters 15 and 16. However, I've not left you without resources. I've added to our sermon audio page a great lecture by our late father in the faith, Dr. Greg Bonson, on Revelation chapter 15 or 16, I believe it is, and then two lectures from our friend and former pastor here, Dr. Kenneth Gentry, on the beast of Revelation and the drunken harlot mentioned here in chapter 17. For those of you who won't have access to that or don't want to take time to listen to those excellent lectures, or maybe just not that concerned about some of the imagery here, and you're fine with what we're going to do today, let me just quickly mention that in, in my understanding, the best I can understand it, and there are different perspectives on this, the woman here, the harlot, represents Jerusalem, apostate, spiritually adulterous Jerusalem. And the beast, I believe, represents the pagan Roman Empire. So with that little bit of housekeeping out of the way, we see that the woman here is referred to as, and here and other places, the whore of Babylon. Let us be reminded that the city of Jerusalem itself had been symbolically compared to Sodom and Egypt, and now we have the comparison metaphorically with the evil city of Babylon. Let me ask you, on that note, what comes to your mind when you hear or read that word Babylon? I think for most people, if there's anything that comes to their minds at all, it probably has something to do with a Sunday school class they had many, many years ago. Or uh, perhaps ranging back to your days in high school or even college, a world history class where you studied about ancient Babylon. But the fact is, for most of us today in this room and other places, when you hear the term Babylon, it hardly raises us to any level of emotion. But that was not so for the people of the ancient world, and especially those who read and heard this book of Revelation. So... Let's ask, what sort of impact would that name Babylon have had for those first century followers of Jesus? Well, I think in approaching that and seeking to answer that question, you and I would need to think of the cities, the current cities of the United States, Las Vegas, San Francisco, and the Chinese capital, Beijing, all at the same time. Because each of those three cities calls to our mind an image, a thought, an emotion about man in rebellion against God. Now, in the case of the first two, Las Vegas and San Francisco, they call to our minds moral and sexual impurity, decadence, depravity, debauchery. The other city, Beijing, home of the Communist Chinese Party, it calls to our minds dictatorial, coercive state power and control over every aspect of a person's life. Uh, we can probably easily substitute Washington, D.C. for the same city. But with those first two, we might say that 
Their wickedness is based on man claiming to himself the right to decide what is right in the area of personal and moral behavior. And public moral behavior especially. But now with the latter city, Beijing, we might say that wickedness is based on something else entirely. That is the idea that a state government claiming to itself the right to have total authority over all aspects of the lives of its citizens. Now, in both cases, it is humanity making itself out to be God. Now, to the righteous men of the old covenant church, the city of Babylon, well, sort of like those three modern cities we just mentioned, all rolled into one. Historically, we know that by the year 587 B.C., Babylon had attacked and destroyed Jerusalem and carrying most of the Jews off into slavery. So what we see being symbolically portrayed in the book of Revelation in that time is a recapitulation, another visitation of God's covenantal judgment on this city and on those people. It had happened before, and here it's happening again in A.D. 70 and for the last time. In our Older Testament reading today, you heard how the early history and foundation of the city that came to be known as Babylon is portrayed for us in the book of Genesis as the Tower of Babel. The foundation of that city was based on rebellion against God's law word. So this morning, what I'd like to do is focus most of our attention on what this seemingly bizarre chapter has to say to us today. Not so much on the hermeneutical, exegetical mechanics of how we see this, in our case, from a partial, preteristic, post-millennial perspective, with some flavors of idealist perspective thrown in. That's important, and we've been doing a lot of that in this study. But I think for us to come to this understanding about, okay, what is the application of this very strange chapter 17 We should understand the contrast that the word of God shows us between the kingdom of God and his government versus the fallen kingdoms of humanity and their governments. Now, the reaction I've actually had from some folks over the years when we take a study like this is, well, now wait a minute. You know, I didn't come here for a lecture on government and politics. What in the world does any of this have to do with God and Christ and the Bible? There are actually people who think that way, and sadly, they have had the upper hand in terms of Protestant evangelical thinking in this country for the better part of several hundred years, and we now reap the whirlwind for the failure of that dispensational culture, where government is left to the hands of Satan, as if it's some area where God has said, oh, no, no, I don't have any interest in being sovereign over government, over, over education, over the family. You all just get yourself saved and go to heaven, and this world, this whole world, is destined for total destruction. That's been the mentality of many, many, many hundreds of thousands of Christians for the past 150, 200 years. I well recall several years ago now, and it has been several years, watching a C-SPAN cable TV special. Uh, Some of you know C-SPAN is... uh, talk and news and government covering, uh, you know, government meetings type channel on cable. In this particular episode, they were broadcasting the live proceedings of a very special gathering in Washington, D.C. It was a formal black tie dinner 
political fundraising banquet. And it was hosted by the then largest gay and lesbian homosexual organizations in the country. And there were about 2,000 people in attendance at, the, at this live event. Now, I happened to tune in when the MC, the, the spokesperson for the event, was introducing the evening's guest speaker. Now, in his introduction, this MC of the event referred to his organization and its dedication to making sure that the, and I'm quoting him here, the increasing numbers of homosexuals would be afforded special rights and privileges. Now remember, this is several years ago. I'd say at least 10 or 15 years ago. And I remember wondering to myself at the time, even then, how it was that homosexuals would be increasing in number since they cannot naturally reproduce themselves. But at that moment, my thoughts were interrupted by the stepping up to the microphone of the guest speaker for the evening. And it was no less than the then Attorney General of these United States, the highest law enforcement officer in our country, the one who was charged with upholding the legal system of the Constitution of these United States. And it was obvious to me, at least, that that attorney general was very pleased to be speaking at that particular banquet. And among other things I heard that attorney general say was how so very proud they were of all the homosexuals who worked with them in the Department of Justice of these United States. My friends, Babylon is neither the remnant of a distant Sunday school memory nor is it simply a name in the book of Revelation or somewhere else in the Bible. Babylon, in all of its wickedness and all of its loathing of God's law, is where we live today. What Babylon represents is contrary to what God expects of any people who would claim to know and worship him. The Bible tells us very clearly what God intended for men and women as they live as individuals in a state or a nation, and as they live together as husband and wife. And as they worship him. You know, before sin came into this world, man and woman were created by God to live in paradise, to live in community. And in so living, they were to establish the kingdom of God and his perfect government in this world. This world. In those early days of creation, the Garden of Eden was thus the location of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, I'm going to suggest to you you may have a different opinion, but I think if you'll consider it, you, you may see I'm accurate. It's not possible, I'm suggesting, for us to think of a country like the United States or Canada or Russia or China or India without at some point, pretty quickly, also thinking about the kind of governments or leadership that they have in those countries. Likewise, when we talk about ancient Babylon or ancient Rome, we must, by necessity, talk about the types of government they had. That's inevitable. And if you need proof of that, well, in terms of the Old Testament, how frequently do we come across a name like Pharaoh, uh, the king, the potentate? These are all symbols of the governments of those places. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we have all over the place 
uh, the Roman governor of Palestine, Pontius Pilate, the magistrates of this city or that, Caesar Augustus, all of these references to Roman authority and Roman government. Now, by the same measure, I'm suggesting when we speak about God and his kingdom, we must speak about the type of government he requires. This, too, has been one of the failings of our uh, modern Baptist culture. The dispensationalist mindset largely has no concept that God has any claims on government whatsoever. The Bible tells us that there are four functions of human government that God intends for this world. There may be more than that, but I'm going to suggest these four today. The first is that men and women are to exercise dominion over the earth under God's authority. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 6, we read, You have given him, that is man, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That was the first Adam. That was the great task God gave humanity at the beginning of creation, to create a civilization that would operate in terms of the sovereign authority of God over all areas of human life. And that includes art, music, agriculture, education, anything you can name. Secondly, man was created in God's image, and he has a calling from God to live in this world. That is to live in terms of God's creative purpose for this world. See, human knowledge of the world is meant by God and intended to extend to every conceivable boundary, every boundary imaginable. But we are to never forget that all knowledge is to be under the authority and lordship of Almighty God because God's law word is the source of all knowledge. And once you posit or claim there is an additional or another source of all knowledge, you have a different God. You're not worshiping the true God. See, this is part of the challenge we have today, is that we see human knowledge and ingenuity being pushed to previously unimagined limits. I mean, walking around with a device in your hand where you can access almost all the current knowledge about anything, that would have been inconceivable just within our lifetimes of most of us in this room. But the problem is, this pushing of this knowledge to every conceivable boundary is all being done under the guise of satanic guidance. And this is why we see death on the rise, both in terms of philosophy and theology and in real time in our culture. People have forgotten. They have rebelled against the foundation of true knowledge. Then thirdly, man has cre is created to be in a relationship at the beginning, God said it was not good for man to be alone, to live alone. Marriage and family were divinely established as a part of God's government and kingdom. So we come to understand that before God gave anything else to us, he gave us the family. It is the fundamental foundational government of all human society. God intends for human beings to develop and live in communities with the family as the basic form of that community. It's no surprise, therefore, that the minions and disciples of Satan have attacked the Christian biblical family unit for many, many generations now. And again, we're seeing the whirlwind. We're reaping the whirlwind of capitulating to that attack. And then fourthly and finally, man and woman are required by God to live in obedience to him. We are required to accept his absolute total authority. And this is where, of course, our first parents, Adam and Eve, failed. God told them, 
not to do something, he didn't give them a lot of detail as to why he was forbidding them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but this much they did understand. This much they did know. They had a choice. A choice to either obey God or doubt God's word. A choice to turn away from his authority and set up their own rules for what was true or false, right or wrong. And so we understand then that God set it up at the very beginning that human beings are to walk by faith and trust in his law word. We are not called upon by God to somehow test his word or to experiment with it to see if we like it or not or if it works or not. We are to believe it and follow it in faith and trust. You see, that's the very foundation of faith, obedience and submission to God. And so we see that as far as human governments are concerned, the fundamental point of reference must be God himself and his word. So there is a reason why then an attorney general of these United States or even a president would give their joyful support to those who oppose the truth of God's law. It's because they themselves have turned away from that truth. So the voice of authority for them is the voice of sinful humanity, not the voice of God and his law. See, this is what Babylon symbolizes in the Bible. It represents the dream that sinful human beings had in the building of that Tower of Babel we read about earlier. It is the dream today of such institutions as the United Nations and their affiliate satanic antichrist groups like the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, who want to establish, and they're coming very close to succeeding, by the way, total control over the entire earth. This has been the dream from the beginning. Christians, true God's law-obeying, Bible-believing Christians have for too long been absent without leave. AWOL, vanished, out of class, I'm voting neutral. And here we are. The oligarchs today, the evil men who control these organizations, they desire to be gods, in other words. They are fine. They are fine with you believing whatever god or gods you want as long as you do not call into question their pretended authority. You know, the leaders of our modern Babylons are quite willing for you to go to your church and read your Bible as long as you do not interfere with their agenda. Now, circling back to Revelation 13, the anti-Christian governments of this world are represented as the beast. And as we read earlier, it is the beast on whom the woman, apostate Israel, the whore of Babylon, rides. That means she is dependent upon the beast. It is the anti-Christian governments of this world that continue to dream the dream of the Tower of Babel. Babylon was the great city of the Old Testament, the city of King Nebuchadnezzar, whom we learned about when we studied uh, in the book of Daniel. He tried to exalt himself above God. And as I mentioned, the Jews were led into captivity by them. And much of the books of Jeremiah and Isaiah are given over to prophesying about why all of this came upon Israel and their call for the, the people of God to return to biblical foundations. But there are interesting comments in Isaiah and Jeremiah describing or referring to Babylon as, and I'm quoting here, the glory of the kingdoms. Babylon, the golden city who exalted her throne above the stars of God. Babylon, who sat as a lady given to pleasures, flattering herself that she would see no sorrows. Babylon, the hammer of the whole earth, 
the golden cup that made all the earth drunken. See, Babylon has been and was a symbol of man's attempt to mimic, to copy the kingdom of God and the history of our world. It's the history of men and women seeking to mock and mimic God's kingdom, God's paradise. So we see that this idea, this this desire is very tempting to humanity. Babylon is called the great harlot precisely because of the temptation that is represented to us in her. And it is the greatest of all temptations for man, the desire to be as God. Now, admittedly, the mechanics of Revelation chapter 17 are complicated. There's a lot of symbolic, strange language. One reason I've uploaded those other messages to decipher some of those things. But regardless of that, I think that the message, the overall message of this chapter is very clear indeed. God will bring his judgment upon Babylon no matter when or where it seeks to build its towers to the skies. You know, uh, from time to time we run across people who are on a journey, a trek to find God. Typically, people who pat themselves on the back that they're on this spiritual journey, they consider themselves quite noble in doing so. I'm searching for the truth. I'm just trying to find the Lord, trying to find God. But they generally do that by denying the reality of human sinfulness. That's the one thing that's usually left out of any type of quest and equation like that. It's the standard New Age self-help nonsense that is now being taught freely in many, many evangelical churches. You know, I haven't picked on Oprah Winfrey in a while. But I I mention her because for for a quarter of a century, 25 years, that woman had the highest-rated, highest-audience afternoon TV talk show in American history. And in case you never paid any attention, it was a major conduit for this type of thinking. I mean, she was wide open with this type of New Age self-help nonsense and talking about how you can be a better person and all this stuff, but never, ever was there any concept or discussion of human sinfulness from the biblical perspective. So people on that kind of search are trying to escape the righteousness of God and his law generally. And they are thus fueling the fire of the beast and the harlot. And interestingly enough, the text here mentions something very characteristic of such people. They are eager to unite themselves in these kind of efforts. They are united in their attempts to destroy the law of God on this earth, in this world. Notice again what it says in verse 13. They are of one mind. And they handed over their power and authority to the beast. Uh, Another translation, they have one purpose to give their power to the beast. One mind, one purpose. And so the message of Revelation is that they, they are doomed to failure in that. They're no less doomed than those men who we read about in Genesis who built the Tower of Babel. No less doomed to failure than Hitler or Stalin or any of their more recent counterparts in this world today. Or any other government that sets itself in opposition to Almighty God. And yes, friends, that includes these United States. For far too long, Christians have been hoodwinked. You've been had in thinking that if somebody sings God bless America and raves an American flag, well, they must be godly. It must be a godly Christian nation. Has nobody paid any attention to what's really been going on for the past hundred years in this country? Asking God to bless anything in these United States, for the most part, is an insult. 
And I think I'm no prophet, not the son of a prophet, certainly don't speak infallibly. But I think based on what we are unmistakably seeing happening in our culture, God is fed up with it. He's tired of it. He won't have any more. And so his wrath is poured out upon unbelief. But the Lamb of God will conquer all of these who set themselves in opposition to God Almighty. Look again at verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him who are called chosen and faithful. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who the Bible tells us is the second Adam, succeeded where the first Adam failed. When our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world and by his victory over Satan at the cross, he began the restoration of humanity to paradise. Now, it's obvious, isn't it, that we today don't live in paradise. We're a long, long way from living in a world that is like the Garden of Eden was before the fall of man. Christ began, though, the work of restoring this world, but that work takes time, and the reality is it will not be completed until the end, until his return. But the point is, our destiny as God's people is not flying off in some rapture and floating on a cloud playing a harp in some disembodied Gnostic-type state. The Bi- if you're going to follow biblical faith, there is a new Jerusalem that will come down to a restored, renewed earth. This is our destiny. Every step the Lord takes through his people, through us, through ordinary men and women who follow after him, is a glorious and necessary step toward that which is yet to come. I remember reading a few years ago about the great basketball player Michael Jordan, probably the greatest basketball player of all times for people who keep up with such things. Some of you may know, if you're an NBA basketball fan, that Jordan played for the Chicago Bulls in the NBA for many years. And during those years, he led that team to many, many victories. Well, the story goes that at one point, the Chicago Bulls were seeking to win a fifth year in a row of championship games. Now, at that particular time, they had hired a new assistant coach, a man by the name of Frank Hamlin. And for over 25 years, that man had been an assistant coach with several other NBA teams. But he had never been on a championship team. And by the time he reached the Chicago Bulls, he was about 50 years old. Now, Michael Jordan knew about this scenario, and he decided he would make a change in that man's life. He told a sports writer, Michael Jordan did, he told a sports writer, the Chicago Tribune newspaper, that he made up his mind that he was going all out in that season. His goal was to take the Bulls to another championship one more time. He was going to do it all this time, though, for this man, Frank Hamblin. Frank Hamblin was later asked about this, and this is what he told reporters. I quote him, Michael Jordan came to me early in the season and told me it was a big motivation for him to win so that I can be a part of a championship team. He said, when the best basketball player in the world tells you that, well, certainly it makes you feel very special. And yes, by the way, the Chicago Bulls went on to become NBA League champions that year. Friends, I tell you this story because maybe in some way, It's an analogy of our Lord Jesus Christ having a similar desire for us. He is determined to carry his church to victory. He wants us to see, even you and me, the glory of his name in all this earth. He wants us to share the glory of his triumphant kingdom. 
In his word, he tells us that if we are in him, we share in that victory. Why? Because he has overcome the world. And that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When the Lord of heaven and earth tells us that, he means it. And he will see it through to the very end. And so, friends, in spite of what may look to be very dire circumstances, both for us in this time, no less than it did for those early Christians, we must never forget Christ is our champion, our victor, and that the Babylons of this world, they may rise, but they will fall. But the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray.